Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Begin reading with verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Father, we come again this morning. Lord, we simply pray that through the words we believe you have given us, that you be honored and glorified, and that we who are here that are saved might be challenged, even as we've already been, to serve you. Give me clearness of thought, and give me freedom of speech. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. At the church that I pastor up in Florence, Kentucky, I have drilled literally for years and years and years and years. I have drilled our people so much (coughs) that when I ask them, (coughs) I think I'm going to have to use your water, brother. How do you interpret a verse? And without hesitation, they will say, context, number one, first and foremost, number two, context, and number three, guess what number three is? Context. And then I go back, and and I don't even have to do that much now. The first context, what do the verses before and the verses after say, how does that verse fit in with the verses before it and the verses after it? How does that verse fit in with the chapter that it's in? And how does that chapter fit in with the book that it's in? Obviously, if you study the book of James, you have to read James differently than you read Romans, for example, because of who they were written to and what was going on. When you read read, um, Ecclesiastes, you know, you have to understand the context of that book is under the sun. That's the context. If you miss under the sun, that is how things appear on this earth without reference to God, if you read it the same as you read 1 Corinthians, you're going to come up with some really haywired ideas out there. So the context of the verse in the chapter in the book. Number two, the context of the whole Bible. God never, never contradicts one passage With another passage. So what is the context? If I read James and read, you know, Galatians or Romans, 
and, and I read it, it appears to contradict each other. But if you go in the context of the whole Bible, they don't contradict. But how does this verse compare with that verse? Then the third context is how does it fit in with the historical setting when it was written? What was going on that caused Paul to write this passage? Why did Paul write that passage? What was happening that he felt the need to write that passage? And the same goes. And, and I, I, who was it said, I don't know a lot of you. But I think most of us understand when Acts talked about Easter, he was not talking about Easter Sunday where you get all new clothes and you go to church to show off your new clothes. I think if you study the historical setting, it the word Easter simply meant Passover. So you have to understand the context of the passage, the context of the Bible, and the context of what was going on. When you read Corinthians, for example, what was there about Corinth that Paul came down very heavily on some things. Now, in looking at this passage, almost every preacher I know, and I, I don't know you gentlemen, if you disagree with me, someone, I think it was Brother Vance said last night, um, you have perfect freedom to be wrong. I'll give you that liberty but in context, almost every preacher that I have ever heard, in fact, I preached it for many, many years, is that the straight gate and the narrow way is the road to heaven. The broad road is the road to hell. Bear with me because I think there's something in this passage that applies more directly to we who are saved than, than I think it does in saying only a very, very, very few people are going to heaven and the majority of people are going to hell. I think there's a point there that another preacher showed me years ago and it changed my whole understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. According to statistics, Christian divorce among Christians is actually higher than the divorce rate among non-Christians. That, that shocked me. I had I have several friends who are doctors and they will not give me names they will not give me any personal information that would violate HIPAA obviously but I've had several doctors know I'm a preacher and they will say do you know how many christian people 
Christian in a very generic sense, not the biblical sense. How many Christians come in and are struggling with anger and they're struggling with, you know, with other issues? Unfortunately, many Christians today don't appear much happier and joyful than the average lost person. Many Christians are angry, bitter, cold-hearted, miserable. They're miserable and they think their job is to make everybody around them as miserable as they are. If you bring it up, they're against it because they're just bitter. They're angry. I don't think that's how Jesus intended Christian people to be. In fact, Jesus came. I, Jesus said, I came to give you life more abundantly. If anybody ought to enjoy life, it ought to be we who are saved by the grace of God. So what's going on? What's wrong? Why are so many, I hate the word Christians in the generic word, but you know, religious people, why are so many Christians so miserable today? Why is it so many churches are cold and indifferent? What's wrong? I think the answer is found in these two verses. To make my point, I'm going to do my first context. What is the context of these two verses? I've got a lot of scripture, and I, I if you follow, and, and if you don't want to follow right now, I will give you, a, I will send you a copy of my notes. You can look them up, study them, whatever you want to do later on. Follow with me very quickly. In chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 5 and verse 1, the context is Jesus saw a great multitude of people. He went up to a mountain, and when he was set, that great multitude came unto him. I do that at, our, at the church I pastor just to see who's listening. It's not what it said. He saw the multitude, he went away from the multitude. And his disciples came and sat before him. So he's telling us right at the very beginning, this sermon is addressed to his disciples. In verses 3 through 12, he gives the Beatitudes. The Gilbert, this is how, as a Christian, we can be joyful. 
This is how you can have real peace. You, you read those. Look at those. Verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, I've been preaching since 1969. I've been pastoring since 1973. So I'm probably older than most of you, except you got me beat by a couple of years. I have never seen a lost person hunger and thirst after righteousness. I've never seen it. But these people, he's telling how to be joyful, how to be blessed. And he said, you'll hunger and thirst after righteousness and you'll be blessed. In verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is the multitude's reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. Lost people do not have rewards in heaven. In verse 13, ye, who's the ye? The disciples, ye, the disciples, which made up the first church. I don't have time to get into that. But ye are the salt of the earth. Nowhere are lost people called the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Lost people are not the light of the world. They're in darkness. They're blinded. In verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Lost people don't have good works. Even their so-called good works are an abomination before God. So he said, let them see your good works and then by looking at your life, they will glorify your Father. Your Father, which is in heaven. Verse 20. Ye have heard, wait a minute, verse 20. For I say unto you, context, who's you? I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They were among the most righteous people in the world. But theirs was all outward show. You must exceed outward show. And I must hurry. In chapter 5, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, 
even as your father, your father, your father. Chapter 6, verse 4. That, that, there, that thine arms, arms may be in secret and thy father, thy father. Chapter 6, verse 8. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your father. Chapter 6, verse 9. The model prayer, not the Lord's prayer, the model prayer, our Father. Chapter 6, verse 20. Lay not up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth, doth corrupt, but where treasure, but where thieves do not break through or steal. Lost people cannot Lay up treasures in heaven. Chapter 6 verse 30. Wherefore if God so clothe the grass of the field. Which today is. And tomorrow is cast into the oven. Shall he not much more clothe you. You. Chapter 7 verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you doesn't make that promise to lost people. Chapter 7, verse 11. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, and for the Lafferty, I'm going to add grandchildren. Grandchildren, I have eight. I got you beat. I wish we could have had grandkids first, don't you? Yeah. Anyway, I would do anything for my children. If my children were hungry and I knew it, I would do anything to take care of them. But as evil as I am, I know how to give good gifts unto my children how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things? Chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you. He's separating the false prophets from you. Verse 16. Ye shall know them by their works. Again, he's drawing a contrast. Ye shall know them by their works. A clear contrast. Now, looking at our text, ye, them, I mean, sorry, ye, you, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, ye refers to his disciples. Now, I think the technical term, and if you don't know this word, it's not worth learning, but I think the term is hermeneutics. Have you ever heard of that word? Yeah. It means there are certain rules 
by, whereby you interpret Scripture. And I gave you most of them. We had a great big thick book, but I summed it up in three sentences. The context before is you, disciples. The context after is you, disciples. Now, enter ye. Enter ye in at the straight gate. And, and, and I, I can't, it took two sermons to cover this at, you know, at, at our church. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. The question is, is he talking about eternal life? Or he said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Is he talking about salvation? Or is he talking about Christian living and the abundant life? You know, I, I've heard for years, there are few, and, and there are few that find it. Please show me where lost people find salvation. No man can come unto me except my Father which hath sent me draw him. You don't find salvation like you find a lost coin somewhere. Few there be that find it. I, I was taught that it's only going to be a very few people in heaven. Me, you, and I'm not sure about the rest of you. But when I get to Revelation, I find a multitude which no man can number. I don't think heaven is going to have just a few people there. There have been over 50 million babies aborted. My personal theology is that a baby is covered and, and I believe that infants that die are in heaven. Amen. I don't think Jesus is going to be sitting on the throne looking around and thinking, wow, I only saved a few. And then he looks down at hell and says, wow, Satan has a much bigger crowd than I do. If you believe it, I love you anyway. But I think God is going to have the preeminence, not just in his awesomeness, I think God is going to be preeminent. There are few that find it. Chap uh, again, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in. 
they're at. Lost people don't have to go in to lost. You don't go in to being lost. The gate is wide and easy to follow. Just follow the crowd. There's many friends and a lot of company on the broad way. And people go in. I interpret that to mean they make a choice to go in. Now, he gives a story of two houses. The one house, the wise man, built his house on the rock. And many take this passage and say, well, Jesus Christ is the rock of our salvation. Amen. Absolutely no question. Jesus Christ is the rock upon which his church was built. Amen. No question. No problem. But this rock in the context, seems to be something different. Notice in verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and somebody help me out. What's that next word? Doeth them. Builds not his salvation, but he builds his house. That which he lives in. That which he is in every day. And, and he builds his house on the rock by doing what he has heard from God's word to do. The rains descended. The floods came. Christians have problems just like anyone else does. I, I, I've mentioned your brother at our church many times. Well, these self-righteous Pharisees. He must have really committed some terrible sin for God to punish him. No, storms come in the life of of some of the most faithful, godly, dedicated Christian people I have ever known. We go through storms. The rains come. The floods come. And troubles come. But our, our house, where we live, stands because our house is built on doing and obeying what we have heard from the Word of God. Amen. The foolish man built his house on the sand. It was easier. It was quicker. Didn't cost as much. But his house looked identical to the other house. I'm addressing mainly you pastors, but I'm sure the rest of you, you've met people 
that you look at the outside, you look at their house, and they look like outstanding Christians. In fact, you can't hardly tell them from the real McCoy because their houses look alike. There's no difference in their houses. The difference is one obeyed the Word of God and the other one did not obey the Word of God. One built their life on the Word of God as it was taught. The other neglected the Word of God as it was taught and chose the easy way, chose the popular way, chose the the broad way that the world is going. And sadly, I see more and more Christians going that same way. It's easy. It's easy to fit in with the world. That's the way I, I was. We, we had breakfast with. When, when I came in, I noticed you left. I hope that wasn't planned. But we had breakfast together and this morning. And I don't know about down here in Alabama, but up in Kentucky, we're right across the river from Cincinnati. And I talk to a lot of pastors through our printing all over the country, and I hear the same thing. Christians today are cold, indifferent, carrying grudges, carrying bitterness. And when problems come because they have been disobedient to the Word of God, when problems come, they've got nothing to stand on. And their house collapses. They, they lose everything. Because they have not done, they, they heard it, they heard it every Sunday. You preached it every week. They heard it. They chose, and I use chose there, I'm not afraid to say we choose sin. They chose to disobey God's word. They chose to go after money. They chose to go after sports. They chose to go after all of these things. And when the floods came, their house collapses because they've got nothing to stand on. I've seen Christians go through things that I can't even begin to imagine. And they come through it with joy. Well, maybe not. Yeah, let me let me differentiate. I got three minutes, four minutes. Let me differentiate between joy and happiness. Happiness depends on circumstances. Joy is deep down, regardless. I had surgery. I don't know. I've had I've averaged one major surgery a year for something. One of my many surgeries, the doctor explained the rest. We were in the holding tank. Just be, The next room is the OR. And I'm in there, and I knew the risk. I knew what could go wrong. I knew everything that could happen. 
And my wife looked up at me on the gurney and said, How are you? And I said, I can't explain it. But I have perfect peace. I didn't know what was going to happen. Didn't know what would come out. Didn't know how I would come out. But I said, I have perfect peace. There are other scriptures. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, Every man's work shall be manifest. We're going to find out whether your works, your house, is built on the rock. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work. What he did. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he'll lose his house and everything. Yes, he doesn't lose his salvation, but he'll be saved so as by fire. He will have no crowns, no rewards. Went to church every week, but he chose not to do what the Bible said. He will lose it all here and he will lose it all at the judgment seat of Christ. God help us.